Welcome back to another podcast from A Passion for Life. My name is Craig Dyer, and today I'm greatly looking forward to being in conversation with Graham Daniels. Graham is, at one and the same time, General Director of Christians in Sport. He's an associate staff member at St Andrew the Great Church in Cambridge and Director of Football at Cambridge United Football Club. And he's no doubt ably assisted by his wife, Michelle, in all these and enjoys the wonders and the blessings of a grown-up family of three and associated grandchildren. Graham, a huge welcome to you. It's great to have you with us. How are you, brother, and how's life at the Daniels family? Well, thank you, Craig. It's an absolute privilege to be here. Uh, Life's good because uh, as we're recording, it's springtime and we're heading as far as we can tell out of lockdown. So it's starting to look pretty decent. Oh, that's awesome. It's great to have you, brother. And the U's are going up. Congratulations on your promotion to League One. You must be absolutely delighted with that. Yes, very, very happy indeed. Uh, I've been in this game long enough to know that uh, rather than four weddings and a funeral, it's four funerals and a wedding in professional football. (laughs) So when the wedding comes, boy, you better enjoy it. You make the best of it. Yes, you do. Absolutely. Well, it was great. I was enjoying watching the celebrations on on the uh, I follow uh, YouTube stuff. It's, ter- it's terrific to see. Now, this has obviously been you were touching there on COVID. It's obviously been a very very tough season. Um, what's your perspective on that? How much tougher has it been because of these restrictions and so on? Well, I think it's been interesting in football. Actually, uh, I don't think there's a general overall rule going on here, but I, I certainly think. Let me be specific. Uh, Cambridge United, for example, is, was a League Two team uh, with a tight, restricted budget made harder by uh, lockdown and so on. At the same time, uh, a lot of teams had to play younger players, less experienced players, because you trimmed your budgets. Now, if you did have crowds, even of four or 5,000, those boys would be more nervous than with no yeah. crowds. Now, that's right. been unusual. So I do wonder whether a number of teams, unexpected teams, have achieved well in the absence of nerves. Uh, That's one possible read on it. I I think, though, most fundamentally, and that's a 10% read of it, 90% of it is it's made money very tight inside the industry, the business itself, and above all, the whole reason for playing professional sport is entertainment. And there's nothing quite like the roar of a crowd. Of course. Uh, and that's been greatly missed, enormously missed. Well, it's amazing even just to hear you speak about some of these wider aspects of the game. Um, obviously, as director at, at uh, Cambridge United, you, you've got these broad responsibilities, much more so than the specific coaching team and the coaching staff and so on. But but your heart is obviously still very much on the pitch with the players where you where you began. How does that help motivate you in the business and community aspects of your involvement? Well, at the heart of this really is that I'm 59 years of age. I met Christ personally at 21 as a young footballer. So that's a good, that's not far off 40 years ago. Um I think what really motivates me at the basis of this is that really since my middle 20s, my big heart has been evangelism. Uh, Not long, getting converted. Actually, what happened was I I got to give my testimony and I'd never spoken in public about anything. And I realised it was something 
amazing about opening your mouth and talking about Christ into a context where people might listen initially, at least, to you because of the sport. So 40 years on or so from that, uh, it's a long way around to saying what motivates me is the incredible privilege of being given a, a vocation by God, a passion, an interest, hobbies, the chance to enter community, not on your own terms because it's not organised by me or St Andrew the Great, it's a football club. And, and having Christ with me when I live out my hobbies, my passions, my interests within that community as a believing man. That's really been my consistent motivation for this for the best part of 40 years. Well, it's going to be great to unpick some of that and hear a little more about it. Let's let's go back then to your earlier days. You've still got that beautiful Welsh accent coming through there. Tell us about your beginnings. Uh, what were they like? Uh, well, I grew up in South Wales. Uh, my dad was a steel worker. My mum worked in a school canteen uh, near our house. Uh, industrial South Wales, really, 60s, 70s. Uh, Port Port Talbot area? Yes, Nethley, just west. Uh, Yeah. uh, uh, Ah, brilliant. I look back now, I had a fantastic mum and dad, uh, fantastic people, uh, great family life. It's a privilege. There's nothing you can do to get that. I was given it and uh, uh, magnificent, really, in in hindsight. Seventies would have been the grammar school system. Uh, so, uh, of course, you only know these things looking back. You go to the grammar school in South Wales and they try to copy what the public schools are doing. So it's all, you know, athletics, cricket, so- never soccer. Never in a million years was soccer really? allowed. It was rugby, rugby, mm-hmm. Wales, rugby. So that that was that was uh, schooling, really. Um I wouldn't have swapped it for the world. It was a, so these were happy, formative days for you. And um, was there any spiritual input in these early days? Yeah, yes, plenty in a certain level. Uh, obviously, it's an era when going to chapel, nonconformist, obviously would have been the dominant method of, of church and chapel in Wales at the time, for, for most of us anyway. Um, but it, it was, again, in hindsight... Uh, you know, it had inherited the sort of liberal tradition in nonconformity, a Baptist tradition. So certainly, I, I, the gospel wasn't preached. The Bible wasn't taught in a in a gospel-hearted manner, perhaps we might say. But even as a little boy, I don't know. You just, I knew, I knew there were people in the chapel who were different. I saw Christ in people, uh, and indeed I had a praying mother. My mother was a converted woman. Uh, again, not taught particularly well because of the culture and the background and sure. growing up just after the war, but she knew the Lord without a doubt. And uh, mm-hmm. I think of her, uh, what I wouldn't go to, I, I, I said, I'm not going to chapel at about 14. I just refused to go. Uh and of course, it led to all kinds of tensions at home for a little while. But I could remember my mother on a Sunday night, eight o'clock Sunday night, after the evening service in the house, in our little kitchen. And she'd play, a, there was a programme of Welsh hymns on local radio. And she'd sit, you know, sit there singing her head off. And she'd say to me, one day, one day, you'll be singing these hymns and you'll wow. choose to. She used to say that, you know. Isn't that and amazing? I did. Yeah. And I did Isn't before she remarkable? died, which was great. Which was Isn't great. that glorious? So she yeah, saw the fulfilment of that. Yeah. She did. She certainly did. 
How wonderful. So then tell us a little bit about how the Lord actually brought you to know and love him. How did that happen, Graham? Well, I, I think looking back on on mum, my dad was converted before he passed away some years later. But, but my my mum, uh, really, she was the formative influence. Of course, you don't think that at the time. But there was a definitive moment when I was 15, and it was pretty definitive. I, I was picked for the school cricket team for no good reason other than a boy fell ill at 5 to 12 and they were leaving at 12. <laughs> and, and Craig, funny you should say that because, of course, uh, listeners won't, won't know that Llenelli to Portalbert is about 20 miles. And you mentioned Portalbert earlier. And Cardiff is about 50 miles from Llenelli. So uh, I was, as I'm ashamed to say, I wouldn't tell my children or grandchildren this, they might find out now. I was in <laughs> year 10 as it is now and I wasn't at school. The exams had finished and I, I, I didn't go to school. Uh, so I was at home and there was a knock on my door and it was a teacher from school with a school <laughs> minibus saying, have you, got, stations. <laughs> have you got your whites? Wow. I said, yes, sir. He said, get them. You're on the bus to Cardiff. So, so terrible, Amazing. really. Off we went. One hour trip. I didn't know a boy in the bus because they were all in the upper six. And obviously I was only picked because they were short. We went to Cardiff. Uh, if, if people like cricket, I, I fielded third f- third man and long leg, <laughs> uh, <laughs> a, a, a deep leg, and uh, and I, I didn't bat. The captain, or the key player, however, sat next to me. This story, I think, is worth it because it's the best encouragement I've ever been able to glean from this. The, cap- the key player sat next to me. He didn't have to. He chose to sit next to me. Interesting. On the way there, nice, pleasant conversation, nice man. It looked like a man, of course. It looked like he had a beard. He was 18. Uh, I was 15. He, 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 On the way back, he scored a lot of runs, took a lot of wickets. It's a Monday. And he says to me, what did you do at the weekend? I said, well, I played cricket Saturday. Sunday was dull because there's nothing much on, 70s in Wales, and I wouldn't, I didn't go to church anymore. I said, uh, I said, what about you? And he said, oh, I played cricket Saturday. I went to church Sunday. I said, you went to church? What did you go to church for? He says, uh, what do you mean? I said, well, does your mother still make you go? And, of course, this is a cool bloke from the upper six, you know, and a really top sportsman. And, and I, you know, it's funny, isn't it? Because, of course, I didn't think, I thought he must be uncool now. It's terrible, really. And he said to me, he said, no, no, I go to church. And he coloured up a bit. He said, no, I go to church because uh, I follow Jesus. And I said to myself, 45 miles to go. I'm stuffed, yeah? <laughs> sitting next to this fella. Now, funny as that story is, uh, six years later, I, I, I became a Christian. And for those six years, going leaving home, going to live in Cardiff, studying, playing football, uh, pre-internet and all that, of course, Guion Jenkins, his name was, he kept in touch with me, letters, phone calls, visits, uh, prayer. And I actually became a Christian. Uh, I was playing football for Cambridge United. And my boyhood hero uh, was Kevin Keegan, who used to play for Liverpool. <laughs> yeah. And we were playing against Newcastle. Keegan was in his last season as a footballer at Newcastle. So we were bottom of the championship as it is today. They were top. Wow. We played at Newcastle. A dream came true, really, I suppose. Boyhood dream came true. I scored a goal there. We lost, of course. We lost all the time. Uh, I scored a goal against Keegan, against Newcastle, at St. James's Park. 
And I came home on the bus that night, late night, of course, from Newcastle to Cambridge. And uh, I, can ne- I, I shan't forget, it was the following Tuesday, we played at Brentford in a League Cup match. And a couple of years before, I'd have given my right arm to play in a League Cup match against yeah, Brentford. Exactly. And now it was an anti-climax. And all I could think of, all I could think of was Guion Jenkins. And uh, six months later, after that weekend, uh, age 21, nearly 22, uh, I got a Bible, read uh, the Gospels again, and I was reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I came to the line, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. And I'd done a philosophy degree at Cardiff, and I thought to myself, oh my gosh, he's made a binary claim. If your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Therefore, if your faith is true, you're not in your sins. It's one or the other. What's the empirical evidence? I read a gospel again and knew I had to become a Christian. So uh, that, and Guion Jenkins was pivotal. Pivotal. Remarkable. Pivotal. There is a postscript to that, Craig. Uh, when I was converted, I asked him about that day on the bus and he said to me, well, you're something I never would have told you if you hadn't become a Christian. I went home that night from the cricket and uh, my dad said, how did the game go? I said, yeah, good. He said, you score any runs? And he scored a shed full. Did you get any wickets? Uh, yeah, I took five. Well, he doesn't look very happy. What's the matter with you? He said, well, you know, yesterday at chapel, uh, there was a talk uh, about sharing the gospel with other people. And I realised I'd never told anybody I was a Christian. So I decided that this week I was going to tell somebody. And they picked up this boy on the way to the game in Cowbridge, Cardiff. And I tried. I I get this. If if anyone thinks they can't do evangelism, listen to this line really closely. I tried and I really blew it. I was useless. And that, that boy on the receiving end of that useless effort was me. Uh, I've told it, as you can imagine, a million times because oh, it's, it's remarkable. Though. Well, it's the Lord. The Lord is the yeah. Lord of the harvest, not me, Absolutely. not you. Absolutely. What a so what a great man. What a faithful man. He's a friend to this day. That is glorious and mm. remarkable. That all down through these years, there was really in God's purposes, as I understand the story, there was really no other human interface. Your mom was praying for you. Mm. Guion had planted the seed. Mm. Mm. to some degree, and that experience of playing against yeah. Keegan's Newcastle mm. took you to the to mm. the pinnacle, as it were, but there was a sense of emptiness. Is that right? Mm. Was that was that the critical thing? Precisely. Uh, I think you're, you're, you're a young chap. I'd never dreamt that would really happen. You know, I, 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 this isn't false humility. I wasn't really good at all. You know, I was good enough to get to there, but I, I, I mean, I, I wasn't good enough to be a really good player. But the Lord, in his kindness, gave me two or three years at that level where six months into it, I, I realised that the rest of my life had to be in submission to Christ and it couldn't be run on my own. And I had somehow he had to put me there to see it, I, I suppose. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Hmm. And we do hear, from time to time, we do hear at least the first half of that testimony, not necessarily everyone coming to know the Lord, but we do hear of people who have reached the top, the summit of their career potential in sports or in the music industry or in films or whatever, and talking about the emptiness at the top. 
Um, but they don't all, tragically, they don't all find what you found in terms of, of coming to know Christ. That is very, very striking. So you obviously finished your schooling there and uh, you mentioned that you'd studied philosophy. I, I wonder, would we, we'd be interested to know, was that like a backup plan if the, if the football career didn't work out or mm. were you genuinely interested in, in more than football at that time? <laughs> well... If it, not, most people aren't old enough to remember that what was the grammar school sele- selection system at 11 and they took 600 boys from my town to one school. Wow. But with the benefits of it were incredible teachers. So the reason I went to university was that I had a head teacher. Remember I said earlier, my mum and dad, you know, yeah. dad worked in the steelworks. He, di- he didn't have a clue about, nobody went to university. And... Uh, I was going to leave school at fifth, 16, year 11 as it is today. I was going to leave. I was going to be an apprentice footballer. That's what I wanted to do. Uh, and I, w- I would have been able to do that. Uh, the head teacher called my parents in and told them not to let me do it. <laughs> he said he mustn't do that. Not many wow. people make it. He, he, he said he, he needs to stay at school. And then after the sixth form, he nagged me, nagged me to go to university. In Cardiff, because that's where my club was. Remarkable. <laughs> and I went there to, <laughs> to read law. But after being there for a week, I realised that you had to study all day, every day. And so I looked for a subject where there the fewest possible number of lectures or seminars in a week. And it was philosophy. So Such a noble I, choice. <laughs> that's what it was. It, it, uh, hardly the motivation of Plato or Aristotle. Uh, <laughs> But then it meant I could go to Cardiff City's Ninian Park every day to train yeah. and then go to yeah. college. So it, it, it was the incredible commitment of, of one man to one boy in 600 at his school, and he would have done it for anyone, which meant that I had that on my CV when the football career wasn't that great. Amazing. 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 So you'd already been recruited to Cardiff City at that point? Yeah, yeah. How, how old were you when you when you were signed there? Uh, around sixteen. Uh, wow. um, you, <laughs> you couldn't play, as I said, you couldn't play f- football really at school, not really. Yeah. And I had to ask permission from the head of PE to allow me to play football, wow. and I asked him to let me go to the Welsh schools trials. Uh, he said, "What? You're not good enough at rugby to go to the Welsh schools trials." I said, "No <laughs> football." <laughs> So I, I went to those and, and uh, Cart- of course, they have scouts at them and uh, yeah. and off I went then. Played you were for spotted then. Yeah. Amazing. Mm. But you really honed your skills playing on the streets, I take it, just just kicking yeah. between lampposts and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, of course. It? Of course, that yeah. was the, that's industrial South Wales, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Although you had to kick a ball, you had to kick the round ball on the sly because <laughs> <laughs> unless it was oval, nobody wanted to do it with you. Absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Thinking about that whole concept of belonging to a team, did, did you have a good initial experience of, of church family when you had come to Christ? Oh, br- Craig, brilliant. Wow. You, you, you are, uh, grat- such gratitude for so many things, talking about this to you, uh, where you've led me here. Uh, after I'd read 1 Corinthians 15, read through Mark's gospel again, About a week later, I was on my own in Cambridge. Uh, The girl I married, Michelle, uh, she was still in Cardiff. She was my girlfriend. We we were were about to get married and I was in Cambridge. She didn't know I'd been converted. She used to come up and see me every few weeks. She didn't know I was converted. and We never went to anything when I was at home. Uh, 
Uh, a week after reading that Bible verse, I, I was walking, I was in somebody's car on King's Parade, the iconic King's Parade in Cambridge. And as we'd go along in his car, I looked out over the window. Michael Jenkins was on King's Parade. Michael Jenkins. I said to my friend, Clarky, stop the car, stop the car. <laughs> I ran out the car, chased after Michael Jenkins, who was about four or five years older than me, perhaps. He was on my school bus. Clever boy. And he was doing his PhD in chemistry in Cambridge. I ran after him. I could see him now. I shouted, Michael, Michael, Michael Jenkins. Of course, Welsh accent. Michael Jenkins. And I saw when he looked round, I thought, oh, I could see him thinking that's that horrendous boy, you know, for, for the school bus. So, so I, I ran over to him. I said, Michael, Graham Daniels. He said, yes, I know. I said, uh, what are you doing? He said, I, I said, I knew he, well, I, I guessed he was doing PhD because of his age. He said, oh, I'm doing a PhD in chemistry. I said, oh, great. I said, are you still a Christian? He was a Christian at school, an ashamed wow. Christian. And he said, uh, I could see his face. He said, Yes, yes, because <laughs> I was just waiting for a bit of Mickey take, I suppose. I said, so am I. And at first he didn't believe me, you know, just for a split second, because he was wondering what I was going to say. And uh, he said, he obviously took it on board and he said, come on, I'll take you for a cup of tea. Went for wow. a cup of tea. He took me to Panton Hall on Sunday, which was a Brethren Assembly yeah. in Cambridge. And a very nice man who was an elder called Robert Gordon was prof an Old Testament prophet Cambridge. <laughs> and oh. for the next three years, Wednesday's a day off in football. I used to go to uh, the combination rooms of Cambridge University and Robert used to read the Bible with me. Isn't that incredible? For three years, three years, uh, uh, Michael Jenkins took me to church and the fellowship was amazing. It was amazing. And my wife, when we were married, my wife came to from Cardiff. She wasn't converted when I got converted, as I said. Yeah. She was converted through Panton Hall a f not very long later, a few months Amazing. later. Amazing. So she no had idea. been going with you to the, to she, the gospel meetings and so on. She, yeah. I was probably a year, six months, the best part of eight months, perhaps, on my own in Cambridge. Now, I told her I'd been converted when she came up. Uh, I, well, I, I was scared to tell her, I didn't know what to say. No, not since we were kids, little children, really. Yeah. So I said, I said, listen, um, when she came on a Friday, I said, listen, um, uh, I'm thinking of going to church Sunday. I'd been once already. She said, all right, why is that? I said, well, I bumped into Michael Jenkins. Remember him on the, in my school? No, I didn't know him. Yeah, yeah, I went to church with him. Do you want to come? Yeah, all right, all right. She came. She obviously she didn't know what was going on, you know. <laughs> uh, and she didn't come up often, of course, because it was a long way. But Amazing. I didn't know, you know, I had no idea this was a problematic issue. Of course, because I didn't know anything, you see. I had no con and the people at Panton were so lovely. And when she, used to, when she used to come to Cambridge, every Sunday we were invited to people's homes, drive her to the station, or she Amazing. looked after her and she gave her life to Christ about nine months later. Mm. So she heard the gospel there, really. She heard it loud it. and clear. And saw it. Yeah. I saw it. Saw it's the big thing, isn't it? Because yeah. she had no background whatsoever she hadn't been to chapel at all glorious glorious amazing oh, absolutely thrilling brother <laughs> and and what was the what was then i mean is it too soon to talk about the beginnings of your route into gospel work i mean how did that begin to happen for you no it was it, it, it's in it, it, on paper it's an easy route uh I, I i'd been converted i was 
baptised at Panton Hall and uh, there was something, you know, the local papers about it and, and uh, I went to training the week after getting baptised and uh, I got a call from the reception uh, training saying uh, there's, a, there's a, a, a man in reception waiting for you after training. So I said, well, what sort of man? They said, uh, said, and the girl whispered, she said, well, he's very tall and he's very, very posh, she said. <laughs> so I said, well, I don't know who that is. So I, I went there after training and uh, indeed this man, he said, um, yeah, hello. He said, uh, my name's Andrew Wingfield Digby. I'm the director wow. of Christians in Sport. So he was 84 and uh, the organisation, this little organisation had been set up in 1980 by him and a few others. And so he he very kindly came to see me uh, and, you know, I inquired, really, driven from Oxford, fair play. So anyway, I got to know him. And, and there was a great moment where he said to me, did I know there were other people playing football who were Christians? Now, there are 90 clubs, and, and I'd been a Christian, you know, not very long, a few months by this time. So I, I said to him, well, no, there aren't. No all. I said, no, there aren't, because I've asked everybody every Saturday when I go somewhere and play people, wow. I know people, and I say, hey, any Christians at your place? Now, I said, I haven't heard of one. I said, there isn't, I said. And he said, no, there are. And I thought, well, you must know, you know, you're the boss of this thing. And uh, I said, so I was thrilled now. So I said, oh, great, how many? How many then? So I'm thinking, you know, you've set up an organisation, it's been going four years, you know, there must be a few then. And he said, uh, four Wow. I said, four, yeah. four players. He said, yeah, four. I thought, four. I said, who are they? And he named three. I said, who's the fourth? He said, you. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the first time it ever occurred to me. I was 22 by then. Wow. Uh, and it just occurred to me, wait a minute, wait a minute. I remember thinking it when he gone, wait a minute. Yeah. Your mother, mommy, <laughs> Guion Jenkins. There was a boy called John Trehan, who, who was a good influence as well, a a cricket player was a great Christian boy, really uh, full on for Christ. But it was the Guion link almost that led me onto the next stage. So, but then I'm thinking, oh, well, hang on. If there's only four people like me in football, perhaps we could be like Guion Jenkins or John Trehano. And then the, that was the seed. That was the seed for what I didn't know would turn out to be. You know, <laughs> a lifetime of, of yeah. gospel work. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. When when I think of you going to these matches on a Saturday and asking around for, is there anyone, anyone mm. in your team who's a Christian or anything like that? I mean, what were your early experiences of, of having that kind of boldness to stand for the Lord Jesus in, in football club culture? Well, well, first of all, when I'd ask people, nobody had a clue. I, I after about two attempts, I just would say, "Is anyone go to church? Do you know anyone who goes to church?" That's what I would say yeah. subsequently. Um, well, there's a range. Uh, let, let, let me find some specific things. Uh, um, I, I was, I was. I'll tell you two stories. I was. I, <laughs> I wasn't mel. I, I wasn't mellow enough at the beginning. So, so, so the first day, uh, I should have got out. Uh, the night I became a Christian, it was a night out for the boys because it was no, it was a day off Wednesday, uh, no game Tuesday night. So the boys were out drinking, really. That was the culture in those days. Mm -hmm. And I should have been there and I would have been there in the past. 
But I started, I read 1 Corinthians and off I went and I didn't go out, you see. And I thought, I've got to give my life to Christ, whatever that quite means. And I, I, I prayed that night. So I didn't see the boys Wednesday. Obviously, I went to work Thursday and uh, somebody said, Oi, Taffy, where were you? Tuesday, too tight to come out for a few pints of you. You know, banter <laughs> and all that nonsense. And I thought, oh, in for a penny, in for a pound. What shall I do? And, you know, this is why good witnesses are great, aren't they? When you see somebody who thought they were foolish like we on. He said to me, well, I went to church because I followed Jesus. Yeah. No, that was the only vernacular I had in my locker. Hmm. So they said, where were you, Taffy? Da, 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 da. So I said, well, uh, look, uh, I stayed in because I was reading the Bible. What? What do you mean reading the Bible instead of coming out for a few pints? I said, well, I just was. And look, I, I've i decided to follow Jesus. I used those words because I, I yeah. sort of emulated him. Yeah, exactly. And one of the boys says, uh, <laughs> the physio's room is off the changing room. One of the boys says, the physio's nickname Melv, Pete Melv. He says, Melv, Melv, get yourself out here. The pressure's got to Bloodwin, which is my nickname. <laughs> the pressure's got to Bloodwin. He's gone mad. Um, but interestingly, uh, well, interestingly to me anyway, Craig, many years later, uh, one of the boys who played with me, uh, a few of them went on to real proper good careers. And one of them said to me, I, I bumped into him about 10 years later, got to know him again, got chatting to him in his 30s probably by now. And he said to me after two or three catch-ups, he said, I like you more now than when we were young. I said, what, what do you mean? He says, uh, he's a good lad, kind bloke. He says... The way you talk now, you listen a bit more. And when you talk about your faith, you don't just talk about it, you listen to what I said. He said that it wasn't quite like that when you started out. So that was a bit painful. I suppose it's it's a risk, eh? It's, it's a risk of being an extrovert, I think. But it had, nonetheless, it, it is that initial balance of boldness Mm. That then, then the wisdom often follows it, doesn't it? So, yes. but 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 it, but it is it is a tremendous sign of the Holy Spirit at work when a young lad like that has the boldness to say, "No, I wasn't out with you last night because I'm I'm following Jesus." I mean, that yeah. that is a remarkable work there, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it, well, it's the Lord's work, isn't it? Yeah. And, and he, it is. I, I think it's probably worth. I think this is probably helpful t- to your question as well. That uh, latterly at a ridiculous stage in life I've been doing a post-grad work because before I stop doing this as a job anyway I, it'll always be a vocation but I, I wanted I know a lot of people who've been converted during their careers and stayed in football and there's nothing in the academy as it were about people being converted to Christ in sporting careers and compared to the data sociological or psychological data so, so I've been working away at that. And in response to that question about what I went through, of course, because I went through that process of being converted within and staying in the game as a job, Yes, I, I interviewed a number of people and I've collected the findings. Here's a straightforward, uncomplicated, but definitely verifiable process that people seem to go through in elite sport. One of four. Number one, there's either banter a slight mickey taking, feeling you out, not quite sure what's going on. It can be harsh or gentle, but there's the feeling out, what's wrong, what's going on here? 
Has he changed? Will he fit? Can he play properly? Will he be a good laugh? If it's not banter, you're definitely tested more harshly. So I, a number of examples of people getting really, really attacked by older pros, nasty, uh, nasty letters under the door of the hotel, using blasphemous ideas about the Lord Jesus and women, you know, really painful. I've got examples, for example, like that, of a new believer being really bullied in the 90s and noughties, you know, older yep. men now. Yep. Culture's changed a bit now. If, they, if it's not banter, it's bullying. It could be both. But then there's a tipping point. If people can see that you can do your job properly, even though they've been nervous about what's going on here, once there's evidence that it isn't going to impinge on your job, that you can actually perform, that dies right down. And then the final phase, different pace for different people, and this was exhilarating to find it in the data, the final phase is that no, because nobody really steps out of line in that kind of dressing room, nobody really takes on the senior professionals or says no to the manager if he thinks something's wrong. He, in my case, with history. Once Christ is in somebody, it's very hard to bear not saying sometimes I can't do that. Oh, no, I've got to do that. You can't leave Christ at home. And what happens is, in the examples of these 14 or 15 men anyway, having gone through banter or bullying, having affirmed that they can still do their job, and the manager's happy with that, they become, the relationships with colleagues at work becomes more personal. They get beneath the surface of banter, laughter, winning, losing, it gets deeper and people would say to them, as all of us who are Christians have experienced, people say, look, there's something about the way you go about your business. My mum's not very well. Hmm. My wife's not very happy with me. Yeah, I'm a bit scared. I've got something on my knee and I, I think yeah, my career sure. could be... The examples, but they never get to there in one step. It's hmm. always through those hurdles, yeah. over those hurdles. Exhilarating to read the stories of people... Amazing opening up to Christ because of the courage to take on the culture. Meanwhile, the capacity to do your job properly, but that integration of faith and sport has effectively been my lifelong challenge. How do you stay on the right side of the line within the culture as a Christian and an athlete hmm. within the subculture? That sounds like a, a fascinating piece of work you're doing for your doctoral thesis and I mean just as you described it there Graham it must be the experience of young Christians in the school environment people who are beginning to find their feet they must go through that these stages that you've that you've described and so encouraging so encouraging for people to hear you know young people at school or someone who's come to Christ mm -hmm. and works with with in the factory or in the building site or in the office or you know, there will be strong parallels there for, for every environment um, and and wonderful to hear that it gets to the point 
where people actually respect and admire the fact that you took a stand, that you were a lone voice, that you opened yourself up to all kinds of mockery and some of it quite unkind, and yet you withstood it. Yeah. Um, and I think that that it remarkably does win respect. And the Lord is all the time authenticating the genuineness of your witness. Which authenticating is good. Yeah. And, you, you know, I, I'm thinking with your examples there, Craig, spot on really for me because... Uh, we've talked about elite sport. You've talked about school, for sure, uh, and workplaces. And it just occurs to me that on the, perhaps not on the elite side of sport, but on the competitive side, over the years, we'll have known thousands of undergraduates who've left school, gone to university, and they get in the first or second 15 and so on. They're freshers. It, it's just occurred to me that there's an alignment here because what a number number of people involved in this work with sports people have done over the years, Christians and sport people, you'll find out. Now, again, these things are changing with culture, I think for good. But over the years, often very crude initiation ceremonies to join a sports team in the past, certainly going to university. So if you were to know what the the, the rude behaviour or the immoral behaviour or uh, drinking behaviour, sexual behaviour. If you could know what the typical initiation was, let's say, or let's not name a university, but at a particular university in the rugby squad, you could then tell a fresher who's a believing young woman or man, now look, this will be the initiation that you're coming up against here. There'll be banter and bullying if you don't do it. If you if you offer one of these three alternatives, other people have said before, look, I'll drink three pints of milk straight down or something, I don't know, instead of alcohol. If you find a way to show that you're up for your game for a laugh, but you're not crossing boundaries, you will find that you'll get respect and it will lead to gospel conversations. That kind of integration into yes. any subculture of sport or arts or music or work or education Huge help. is a critical trajectory. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. it is. Amazing. Um, just as you were describing there a moment ago, the ability nonetheless to be able to do your job, so to speak. Um, I mean, now over the years of football club management and, and being on the board and uh, being a director in governance and so on, there must have been times when doing your job meant tough conversations. Uh, you know, thinking of the, the retained and the released list and that negotiation or having to dispense with the manager's services. You know, is there a is there a Christian way to handle these potentially confrontational situations? Oh, well, uh, as anyone listening to our conversation will have experienced from their own lives, and I, I think... The, the the wonderful thing about uh, a historical evangelical view of of vocation is the way it teaches you to look back on wherever the Lord has put you and the people who's put you with. And I do this regularly myself, is to look back and think of two things. One, the incredible joy that God has been kind enough to give me through my own family, children, parents. Uh, sport, studies, places where he's put me in his great design. And I look back on incredible moments of joy where I tasted how good God is to know personally through the vocation he's given me. And he's worked in that, you know. And then, conversely, but equally, if not more powerfully, 
the way in which when it's been really, really hard, you know, uh, it's, it's not the resurrection, this one, it's the crucifixion, it's the pain. And I, of course, like everyone else, I've learned more in, in the painful aspects of my vocation than I have in the joys, but both are needed, aren't they? So the moments I've hated most in my life, and they never get easier, is that moment when you say, hey, Pete, listen, I need to see you this afternoon. Uh, Pete, listen, you're not getting a new contract for next year. Or the manager, the owner says, that's it, you know, that's it. He's, he's going now. And you think, well, there's no real option. And you have to say, listen, if you, I need to come and see you. Mm-hmm. And the man knows, you know, when that call comes, I need to of come course. and see you. Uh, what what have I gained? Uh, I, I mean, they're hardly sophisticated. Uh, do all, do everything in your power to tell the truth all the time. As far, you can't tell people everything all the time. That's obvious. You can't give everything away all the time. But to try and be as transparent as you can, uh, as respectful as you can in giving all information. Uh, two, when you have a tough conversation to have, look a man in the eye or a woman in the eye when you tell them. Be present. Don't do it on the phone. Go and see them. And for me, it's it's three. Keep it as short as possible. <laughs> Just say it, because no one's listening once you've said it. Don't try and butter it up. Just say it. Shut your mouth and wait to see what happens next. And finally, anyway, this is it for me, as you ask me to frame it. Never stop keeping in touch. Uh, we had a lovely, I'll have to be careful, but inevitably I've, in my role here, I've had to tell more than mm-hmm. a small number of people over 10 years mm-hmm. uh, that their contracts ended. Um, and when we were promoted, as you alluded to earlier on, easily the happiest note I got, easily, by a thousand miles, was a note from an individual who, who I'd had to t- tell him that he was out of work. And it it's a costly business for him, and uh, we—he—I—I've I, never spoken to him for a long time because he—he would never respond to anything for me. And when I got a note saying, "Many, many congratulations on the promotion," my heart jumped for joy. Yeah, I probably—this isn't meant to be grand, you know, Craig. It's—it's I, 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 just meant to be the real thing. Yeah, absolutely. I've probably said to him, maybe. I won't say over many years, but let's say two or three texts or WhatsApps a year. How's it going? How's the kids? Never anything back. So it it doesn't mean you put a penny in a slot and it works, no. but it means you stay in the room. and you keep and that, investing. Stay in the room. Stay in the room. If you've got a vocation with your children, with your family, with your neighbours, with your with your job, stay in the room. For, for, stay in the room. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, remarkable. That's, that's a way of looking at it, I think. That's such distilled wisdom there for us just in with multiple applications for life. So thinking about the relational aspect uh, of, of life in general, you know, anybody looking at your life might have thought that it was full enough without taking on responsibilities in, in the local church. But obviously the local church relationships matter uh, to you. Is that right, Graham? More more than anything, uh, uh Yes, uh, when Guion Jenkins, his father, was a minister, uh, you might say, you know, in church history terms, Calvinistic Methodist minister. And uh, so the first book 
uh, I ever got in the post after being converted was a commentary on Ephesians 4, Darkness and Light, from the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the first book I ever got Mm -hmm. from Guion. I think his father must have told him to send it to me. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) um, and, And some time later, maybe, you know, three or four years later, I I just knew, I, I knew as far as I could tell, my, my life's work would be full-time Christian leadership, ministry, service, service. Um, and I went to college um, <clears throat> and I was determined that I was not not going to work for somebody like Christians in Sport because Dr. Lloyd-Jones would say the greatest privilege in the whole world is to be the pastor teacher of a local congregation, to be the minister of a local church. And I I, I was always, it took me about 10 years to accept that my vocation was to reach the world of sport for Christ with many other colleagues uh, all over the country and all over the world. That was part, my little part of the garden was that. Um, But I did have uh, three or four years uh, as the, pastor of a church plant straight out of college in the late 80s in a, a village west of Cambridge, a new village. And indeed, I was I was there uh, for the best part of uh, uh, 15, 18 years. Uh, somebody else came in as the pastor when I did more Christians in sports stuff, but I was there for a long time. And then in around 2000, around 20 years ago, uh, there was a fantastic... A uh, church leader in Cambridge called Mark Ashton, who was a, a real, a real top bloke, and I spoke at a men's breakfast for him, and he invited me to, to <laughs> he invited me to join the staff of his church. This is before I became the director of Christians in Sport. I was part time on the staff of Christians in Sport, and I said to him, "Well, I, I can't do that." I said, uh, I'm a free church minister because <laughs> I'd never been in an Anglican church, I don't think. I said, what do you mean join your staff? He said, oh, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. You, <laughs> you can join our staff. I said, well, I don't believe in it for baptism. He says, don't worry about that either. You'll never have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good deal. <laughs> but he was, I should be flippant, of course, because there's serious issues, but he was, uh, uh, until he passed away some years ago, I had an amazing uh, tuition from the age, from my late 30s, really, into my late 40s, probably. I mean, I should have been old enough to know a lot more than I did, but they were pivotal years on ecclesiology, on the centrality of the local church, on the importance of, I knew the importance of God's word, of course, but taught in community for mission and maturity. And so, yes, it's always been absolutely central. Uh, and indeed, uh, you know, I'd, I'd want to hasten to say, that working in a parachurch context in a in a mission organisation, uh, one of our central values because of this from day one, uh, for me and my predecessor was a, was a Church of England minister, an evangelical man, Wingfield Digby. We have always said Christians in sport is not here ever to replace uh, the the development of a believer or indeed the evangelism of an unbeliever through a local congregation. Uh, we're here to go be- way beyond the boundaries where you may not get to initially, but as soon as we can, as soon as we possibly can, uh, for example, with elite sports people, we try and embed them in a congregation uh, where they can belong. At universities, we want people to be first and foremost stuck into their local church and for adults and young people. Critical, the, the, the most fundamental thing. Wonderful. 
what is your role at um, Stag, and and what's your vision for a positive mm. mission culture there? Yeah, well, lest uh, lest lest people think I, I am a maniac who works all the time, uh, I should clarify this uh, because, of course, you, you, there are certain roles one plays in life. But first and foremost, you know, I, to put it in its most basic fashion, I get up every day uh, to work for Christians in sport. That's my salary. That's my job. Uh, but I, I felt all along, and indeed for all the staff. Uh, those on the mission staff uh, of Christians in Sport, because of course there's there's people making the organisation tick over, uh, and people go out to do the speaking. Uh, but I've always felt that it's absolutely vital that if you're going to ask people who have uh, jobs in a range of areas of society or in education, if you're going to say to them, go and train a couple of times a week and play on a Saturday, uh, well, if you can ask other people to do that, if you're t- if you're you better do it yourself. <laughs> so sure. the reason I've always stuck in the football, I've not been paid for the football. It's not my job. It's always voluntary in the last 15 years anyway. Uh, I'm in it because you need to be in a community where you're not in charge uh, and be stretched and tested and pressed. So that's the reason for the, for the, I love the football. I'm not in it for a means to an end, but You've, you need to stay in that community if you're in gospel work, I think, as a salary job. Critical for me. For me, it's sport. With St. Andrew the Great, well, you've just, with Stag, you've just asked the question. It, it, being part of the local congregation is the most fundamental family that one can belong to as a believer. So I'm in Stag because it really matters. And, and my, I, again, I'm not salaried by Stag. I'm there as an associate evangelist simply because I, I have a passion for sharing Christ and and I can preach evangelistically seven or eight times a year at church, uh, and and play a small role in galvanising the evangelism uh, in Cambridge amongst the university students and the town. So that's how these things hang together. You, you know, like anyone else, I've got some vo- unpaid voluntary things which I know are part of God's kind vocation. Yes, and so they're my investments. And they just bring a tremendous balance, a kind of biblical balance to to your life in, in lots of ways, I'm sure. Yeah, well, well, it, I, I think of incredible things. When Mark Ashton, when I was working for Christians in Sport and working for Mark Ashton in the early 2000s, I mean, incredible. The year he died of cancer, which is not far off a decade ago now, I was preaching. Now, this is a man who had a congregation of probably 1,500 I was. I can remember going to preach at Stag one Sunday morning, second service on a Sunday, walking just walking in towards Stag. He he drove past in the car. He died four weeks later, of cancer. His his wife was driving just a few hundred yards to his house because he couldn't walk. They pulled on the curb next to me. I was on the passenger side. He put the window down on a Sunday morning and he said, "Ah, oh, Grave, nice to see you." He said, uh, "I'll be. Lis- I listen to the sermon later on. Uh, you're preaching." Mm-hmm. I uh, hope it goes well. He said, by the way, uh, you're off to Newcastle, aren't you? Uh, University Mission at Newcastle studying tonight. I hope you have a great week. Uh, he said, and well done yesterday in the football. Amazing. Off he drove. I walked about 10 yards and I thought to myself, oh my gosh, oh my goodness me. Yeah. He knows all about my week. Yeah. He was the one who, when I joined the associate staff of Stag. He said to me, I used to work uh, in parachurch youth work. He says, here's the deal. It's non-negotiable. 
You'll preach between five to eight times a year. You'll be at church 40 weeks a year. Of course, you have your holidays. Perhaps preach away seven or eight times on a Sunday. Uh, you're an evangelist by profession, as it were. Therefore, you need to have a great church family. Your family needs a great church family. You need to stop on a Sunday and therefore, we let you preach seven or eight times on a Sunday. I said, because I was 38, I said, he's a quite a scary man, really. You know, he's six foot two, big muscles, very posh, big church. He says to me, uh, I said, Mark, I, you know, in the church I'm in now, which I'm the pastor of church plant, um, you know, I'm preaching 35 times a year. He said, yeah, very good. You'll be preaching five to eight times a year. You, need to, you can't work all the time. You can't work all the time. We'll keep you fresh. We'll keep you sharp. You'll have people who can preach better than you, who can critique you and help you so you don't do the same sermons everywhere. He says, but that's what a church is for, for somebody who's in full-time Christian work himself outside the church. That's great insight, isn't it? Amazing, amazing. He used to look at my diary. He'd know my monthly diary. I had to send it to him. Best thing that ever happened to me between 38 and 43-ish because somebody really committed to gospel work beyond his own parish in God's wonderful timing, 500 yards from where that boy had seen me on King's Parade, Michael Jenkins, where I saw Michael Jenkins, Incredible. set me the boundaries for the next 20 years. And within four weeks of that conversation where Mark told you about this, what had happened on the Saturday, gone. what was about to happen, he was with the Lord. He was gone. He was Amazing. gone. He was, he just think, well, I, I've thought it a hundred thousand times. I think if I have time, if I have time when I know I'm on my way home, I want to be like that. <laughs> I want to be like that. Totally focused on, how could you be focused on a bloke? One of your f 15 <laughs> staff or whatever it is out of, th how, uh, yeah. wow. No, so it is, it's very humbling. Mm. Humble, it just keeps, you, I can't bear it, you know, and you get too full of yourself in, I, I do it to myself. You think, don't get, don't get full of yourself. You fool. You know, the God's too big. His grace is too big. Great people of maturity and age are deeply humble. Yeah. Get a grip on that. That's awesome. <laughs> now yours is, and we've we've touched on it there. Yours is a demanding schedule. How do you, how do you stay fresh spiritually, and how do you manage your time and your commitment so that you can be invested in the room, staying in the room, to use the mm -hmm. phrase that you use? How do you do that, brother? Well, I don't know if I'm advertising here, uh, but I'm certainly not getting any money for it. Uh, two books that have been very helpful and pivotal, two of the books, uh, Matt Perman, which isn't that long ago, uh, What's Best Next? And, and he worked for John Piper, as a sort of uh, chief of staff type of role, I suppose. He writes really well about vocation and timing and diary management. And uh, all our staff at Christian Sport use that. And there's a secular tool called Getting Things Done, which is an American thing from about 15 to 20 years ago. So it's those things have been really helpful on basic diary management and timing. To be anecdotal about it, Craig, uh, because we live in Cambridge and all our family are in Wales, uh, all the growing up years of the children, we learned a routine, which is every half term, without fail, uh, we'd go to Wales. So for years and years and years, you go to Wales, and in the days of computers and that then, never took them, never used them, never worked, mum's, dad's, family. Now that comes up, obviously, three times a year. It's a good routine. 
uh, and it worked really well. Uh, never work Friday night. Sometimes you do an event, obviously, because of the work we do, but very rare for me. For, uh, my wife's rarely worked on Fridays. She, she works in a comprehensive school. Uh, the children are gone now, of course. Sh- she's off on Friday. There's no stress because you haven't lost on Friday. Uh, you've lost on Saturday <laughs> night. Saturday night's variable or you're at the other end of the country. So Friday lunch to Friday, to you know, to Saturday morning, no stresses, free time. Very good. And Sabbath, Sunday, Sabbath, Sunday. Uh, obviously preaching, but not any other work, not doing mm-hmm. Christians in sport, admin, catch-ups, no work on Sunday. So the combination of those, Friday, obviously when the kids were around, Friday was always things with the kids. Half term was always family. Sunday, not working uh, wherever possible, and it, which is most of the time. Uh, basic pathways, markers, signposts in life. Brilliant. Um, as we begin, regrettably, to wind this down so that you can go and do, be committed to the other things in your diary today, Graham. Obviously, Christians in Sport is is making a, a tremendous impact under God among the competitive and elite, elite athletes and so on. Um, how is it that you support people at these levels and, and how would local churches pray for your work mm. at mm. CIS? Well, thanks for asking, Craig. I, 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 I've told the story of Gwion Jenkins and, and frankly, I don't need to give you too many abstract principles. No. I mean, we're looking... Christians in sport is very, very basic indeed. We just, my predecessor chose a name that you can mark on the tin because you can't miss it, Christians in sport. So it's a good name. And it just means first, men and women, girls and boys who do have faith in Christ, uh, our shorthand is pray, play, say, uh, from Colossians 4, uh, 2 to 6, prayer, proclamation, uh, uh, and we'll say, look, the best thing you can ever do if you know Christ and you're a sports person in any shape or form is to pray for your teammates, play in a way which honours Christ, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, make the most of every opportunity, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to answer everyone, and say something of Christ. Pray, play, say. That's what we say to all sports people. It's as simple as that. All three are needed. Uh, to to get stuck in. You've got to live the life. You've got to speak of Christ appropriately and keep saying your prayers. Uh, and then beyond that, I think what we're, what we're always saying is, one, get stuck into church. It's the first place to be if you're a Christian. You just happen to be sporty. So we, we're doing that all the time. And then we're providing, of course, resources uh, in all sorts of formats, shapes and forms, to help people pray for their teammates, play in a way that honours Christ and say something of him. Uh, and I look back now on the opening story you asked me, if we're winding in, you know, I think the lockdown has been incredible for so many of us in its sadness and and in the unexpected things that God has done with it as well. We'd have never dreamt that we could have a, a weekly video call, Zoom call, <laughs> hmm. with rugby players, rugby players, football players, football coaches, female netballers, 
tennis players from around the world, track and field people. I've been involved in this work for years and years. If you wanted to see a, a professional athlete, for example, you'd have to travel to see them, make a phone call, but mostly you'd see one or two at a time. And it would cost you a lot of money to get there. We knew of three, I was told of three other footballers in 1984. We know, we know 500 elite athletes, wow. even in this country, just now. Remarkable. Many of whom are on Zoom calls once a week for one hour on their day off. Unprecedented. It's mm. unprecedented. We've Amazing. It, it never seen anything like it. So all, all it says is, it's not quite revival, is it? 500. Uh, well, but what it says is the Lord knows his own. Uh, he'll call his own. But what you need to do is to pray for them to play in a way that honors Christ and to say something of him. Get the Bible open. Believe in getting them. Maturity means getting those people into a local church. If they profess faith, get them into the body of believers and let them grow up as men and women, not just as sports people. Let them come to a whole church family and see there's more to life than sport. But God gave them that vocation. That's the exciting thing about the work. It's exhilarating. And at the same time, like all gospel ministry, deeply frustrating. Absolutely. Brother, we are uh, so thankful to the Lord for you. And uh, it's been a real blessing as we try to set up this little podcast to encourage us to be thinking about um, really beginning to get the gospel out. And, and what does it look like to be uh, prayerfully depending on the Lord and strategically trying to deploy um, these that kind of missional mentality. So it's been a terrific help to hear of God's grace in your life and to hear of all that wisdom distilled through years of seeing him at work and being part of that. We do thank the Lord for you. We pray his continued protection and provision for the work of uh, Christians in sport and uh, the work in the local church there at Stag. And of course, your ministry at uh, the Abbey Park at Cambridge United. <laughs> uh, that's been a real blessing to us. And thank you all so much for listening. We hope, as I've said, that it has encouraged you and that you'll be kind enough perhaps to join us again on this podcast from A Passion for Life. Do check out apassionforlife.org.uk for details. Do check out christiansinsport.org.uk for details and for opportunities to pray for that ministry. Bye for now.